Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, eight years later, I'm still here. So for those of you who've been waiting for me to go away, I'm still here. I'm still here. So happy anniversary, church. And uh, to those, whether this is your first Sunday or your 418th, uh, we're glad that you're here. Because we get to consider Jesus. We get to talk about him from his words. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, grab it. If you don't, there's, there's one of these black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that as a gift from us to you. Another option is these blue uh, Bible journals. And this journal is just the Gospel of John. So we bought those uh, for everyone in the church. If you don't have one of these, there's, you could find one in the back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you for getting up right now and going and finding them in the back uh, in the foyer or you can grab one on your way out. Take that, mark it up, circle, highlight, as you study the Word of God. Um, in our cadres, if you're a part of a cadre, or uh, in your personal time. So, uh, let me just start by praying and thanking God for both this morning and for eight years of His provision and grace upon this community. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, we are standing, sitting here in delight, knowing that you are a good God and you give good things to your children. And so we've experienced that, those of us who have been a part of Sedaris in one way or another over the last eight years. We are so thankful for this community that you have built, that you have poured your spirit into, that you have built brick by brick and we know you are the cornerstone. And so we, we just sit in awe of what you've done, uh, how the gates of hell have not overcome this place and this community, and that we still get to sit here and sing praise to your name, study your word together, consider what it means for our lives and for your glory, and press into the deep mysteries of this world. And so... We are just so thankful. We are thankful for the saints that have come before us, who have put blood, sweat, and tears into this community, that have moved on, and we thank you for them, and we pray for them now, too, that they might experience your loving touch this morning, wherever they are, that they remember what they got to be a part of and participate in. And so we just asked as we celebrate today and at four o'clock that uh, stories would abound of your faithfulness and your goodness, your mercy and grace as we've pressed in on this mission for eight years now. Give us new energy as things are just beginning. You have so much more to do here in this city and around the world. So we, we ask you for a fresh filling of your spirit that we might go forth and continue on in faithfulness and strength and in joy knowing that the victory is won that you are the king that you have come and died and rose again and that we just get to participate in telling that story around this world we thank you in Jesus name amen amen you never know you never know when you start something, how far it'll go and how many people it will reach. Uh, 
I'd be amiss not to mention that we've got my, one of my, a couple of my favorite friends here who are in town from Greece, Shamal and Claire. They're sitting right here in the front row. So uh, give them a round of applause because you've heard their story, <laughs> whether you know it or not. Uh, 11 months ago, actually, is when I visited, and Kathy's here uh, with Kathy. I got to go over to Greece, and now Shamal and Claire are living just down in Portland, and, and uh, really cool to have them here just to show God's kingdom around the world and how it connects and reconnects, and pretty exciting. Um, so today we get to look at how this whole thing started, how the church was birthed, and uh, Last week we talked about John the Baptist making his amazing proclamation, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And uh, his proclamation, his beholding of salvation, as we'll see then, ignites the start of the church. And so this week we'll see the, the calling of the first disciples to follow Jesus. So... Um, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking of all the early adopters that um, are present in this room. Andrea, I see Andrea here, early adopter, pre-launch adopter. And, uh, and just what a unique thing that is to be an early adopter. Um, I read an article in the Seattle Times this week about how uh, they're trying to pass a new law, or, or it's on the, on the ballot, to take away the right in certain areas to take a right turn on a red light. Have you seen this? Now, what's interesting about that is that Washington was actually the first state uh, in the Union to allow right turns on a red a long, long time ago. And it's funny how now we're all the way on the other side of that, wanting to reverse that early adoption that we had of a new law. And there's so much that could be said about that, but I just think it's interesting how um, we live in a city of early adopters. Uh, a lot of new things start in Seattle, including turning right on red. And um, many of you might be early adopters, uh, whether that's in your family, you're the first in your family to begin to follow Jesus. And as we'll see, that often doesn't mean you're the last in your family to follow Jesus. Uh, maybe you're early adopter amongst your friend group and you're the first to kind of be a part of a church or try out Alpha, uh, but you probably won't be the last in your friend group to come to follow Jesus. And so there's so much uh, in this passage that we'll look at today that I think is encouraging for us. Um, to all you early adopters of, of Sedaris and the vision to start a church a community that considers Jesus together here in a city like Seattle. Thank you for being early adopters. Thank you for doing something that was, at the time, pretty crazy. Uh, I remember just five of us, Kurt and Augusta, you guys are in the back there. Uh, Kurt and Augusta, me, Kurt and Augusta, Allie, my wife, and uh, one other person started in our living room reading the Bible together right next to the two Tutabellas over here on Stoneway. That's crazy. You guys are crazy <laughs> in all the best ways. You'll, you'll meet some other crazy people here in the story of Jesus. But um, when you meet those early adopters, if you're not an early adopter and you learn, oh, man, these people have been here for eight years, thank them. 
thank them for being crazy <laughs> and brave and, and, and trusting that God might surprise them because uh, many have along the way um, benefited from their early adoption of something God was doing here in this city. And of course we have to thank these early adopters that we'll read about today for their willingness to follow this Jesus. Um, before they ever saw him perform a miracle, before they ever saw him rise from the dead, before he was not a name above all names, uh, they followed. And their following has led to our following, which has led to our good. And so uh, this sermon's all about early adopters and how God uses them to bring about his kingdom in the world. So let's read it together, and then we will unpack it as we have the habit of doing. So John chapter 1, verse 35. If you're using the black Bibles, that's going to pay, be on page 941. 941 if you're using the pew Bibles. You can also Google John chapter 1. So I'm going to read here from verse 35 to verse 51. Again, this is coming right on the heels of John the baptizer. John the baptizer. Uh, baptizing Jesus, seeing the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descend on him in something like a form of a dove, and it confirms to John the prophecy that God had given him that that would be the Messiah. And so John realizes now that he's in the presence of Jesus the Messiah and has just proclaimed, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it goes on in verse 35 to say this. The next day, the next day, John, that is John the baptizer, not John the gospel writer, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. So John had a following of, of students that would follow him as a teacher, as a leader. So he was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, or behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus said, and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. Another John in the story, popular name back then. Simon's father's was, name was John. You will be called Cephas, which is trans, translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. 
Nathanael responds, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. That's funny, and we'll unpack why. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So fun. (laughs) Okay, this is so fun to get to talk about this. What a privilege. So I want to do a couple things here. I want to unpack this idea of coming and seeing. What does it mean to come and see? And then I want to look at five examples we have, including John the Baptist, of people who have enough belief to follow. Enough belief to follow. And then we'll ask, okay, what are we going to do with this? How does this apply to us? Because obviously Jesus isn't walking through our town right now in physical form. So how do we follow him? Okay? So, first things first. I want to I unpack verse 35. It says, the next day, John, that's the, the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples. And he sees Jesus passing by him. Okay? Now, if you, if, you, if you were reading the Greek here, he saw him, meaning he stared him down like a deep stare. Not just kind of like peripheral vision. Like he saw him and he's just transfixed to him, this, this John the baptizer. And he says again what he said the day before. Look, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's here. He's right there. Now, one of the reasons I love this so much is that if you've been around, especially if you've been here for eight years, you'll know how true this is. I really only have a few words that I say ever, and I just say them over and over and over again. And everybody knows what they are, right? Consider Jesus. God gave me a message in 2007 when my sister Kim was killed in a bicycling accident. He gave me a prophetic word, tell people to consider Jesus. And it seems that John only really has five words. (laughs) We don't hear from John again. That was his job. He was a voice, we talked about this last week, of one crying out in the wilderness, behold the Lamb of God. That's what his task was in the story of Jesus. And what an amazing line he was given. What an amazing line. And I feel the same way. So behold the Lamb of God. Five words John had, and he seemed to just every day probably say it, every time he saw Jesus. And my five words are, don't wait to consider Jesus. I've been saying it since my sister's memorial service, and I'll say it to you again. Don't wait to consider Jesus. So I hope you're here considering, not just waiting for me to be done, not just glossing over, but engaging your soul at the deepest level and considering this Jesus that we're reading about. 
that can walk up to somebody and change their name the first time he meets them. Where people will leave the teacher that they've been following to follow him just because their teacher says, go, that's the Messiah. Who is this Jesus? And don't wait. You have no idea how much time you'll have. When you have a chance, consider, consider Jesus. So I love that John just kind of does says the same thing he said the day before. There's nothing new, and he probably said it many times over. Go and see this Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the disciples hear him, his disciples, and, and they hear that as John saying, go, he's the one. You've learned all you can learn from me. Now you need to go and follow him. And so they, they, they followed. And let's keep reading now. The two disciples heard him, that's John the baptizer, say this, and so they followed Jesus. Now this is both physically and figuratively. They f- begin to follow him. So they literally just start walking after Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he says, hey guys, kind of creepy, what are you doing? And he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Interesting, where are you staying? This isn't just they're curious what hotel he's at what the accommodations are like. They want to know where he's staying so they can go, be near to him and learn from him. And Jesus says, come, and you will see. So we have it broken out for us here, you will see. But it's important, first thing I want to mention here is that this come and see, which is repeated three times in this passage, an important phrase, come and see, is a combination of Come, which is in the imperative. Come, that's the command, imperative. You've got to do something here. And see. So come and see. And see, this translation is nice. It it helps us here. It's actually the future tense. You will see. So come with me and you will see, Jesus is saying. So it's more than just you'll see where I'm staying. It's you'll see who I am. It's this amazing promise that we are given that if we come to where Jesus is, we will see something truly spectacular. So three times we have that in the narrative. Come and see. Come and see. If you consider, I would say, you will see. If you truly move yourself out of the center of your universe and you allow Jesus to stay there, you will see things you never thought you could see. You will see that he is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the anointed King of all the universe. But you must come. That's your part. And then you will see. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. And the thing that's important here when we unpack this coming and seeing is that true belief must include experiential knowledge. It's not just enough to think about these things. 
There's actually a requirement that you come physically and move yourself into a space that's occupied by Jesus in order to see and believe in the fullest sense. We often forget that. Even when we say consider Jesus, we're saying consider him with your whole self, not just your mind. You've got to bring your whole self into proximity to where Jesus is staying. Now, this experiential knowledge, this seeing that happens, as we said a couple weeks ago, must always be preceded by an important question that either somebody asks us, in this case Jesus asks these two disciples, or we can ask ourselves, or we, a friend can ask, or something like this. What is the question? Do you see it here? Jesus asks them, what are you looking for? Or depending on which translation, what are you seeking? This question actually John repeats three times in his gospel. The other two times is once when the soldiers come and meet him, if you know the story of Jesus, and to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers show up with Judas, spoiler alert, and they come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, what are you seeking? Who are you looking for? Which, if we were reading the gospel just through, we'd remember when he said that to these two disciples. Then the next time, John puts the same question in, in the exact same form, with the exact same words, is after the resurrection. Spoiler alert again. Mary, Magdalene, is, has just seen the empty tomb. Jesus' body is not there, and she's wondering what to do. And she sees somebody who she thinks is a gardener. And the gardener asks her, who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Of course, she's seeking Jesus. And Jesus reveals himself to her and says, Mary. And she says, Jesus. So John is setting up early in his gospel this question that is going to be common throughout. You can encounter Jesus for a number of reasons. And the question is, what are you looking for? When you're looking for him, what are you seeking? So if you come to see, but what you're looking for is not who Jesus truly is, if you're not looking for salvation, if you're not looking for the forgiveness of sin, if you're not looking for the lamb, you'll miss him, and you might just arrest him and hang him from a cross. So you can ask the question, but if you're not asking, if you're not aware of what you're looking for, You'll miss the revelation of what it is. In the uh, uh, TV series, The Chosen, if you guys have watched it, um, it's sort of like a behind-the-scenes story of how all the disciples started to follow Jesus. And uh, in the scene that's sort of depicting this passage, um, Andrew comes to Peter, and, and they're struggling in their fishing business. And so... Andrew comes, and this is not in the text, this is all just imagination, uh, but, but Andrew says, hey, I think I found the Messiah, and, and Peter says, listen, he, or Andrew says, we found the Lamb of God, and Peter says, listen, we don't need 
lambs right now. We need fish. It's a very funny line. And that's kind of the problem for a lot of us, isn't it? We're not actually looking for the Lamb of God. We're looking for something else. Now, maybe we come and seek God in order to find that other thing. But if we do, we'll miss seeing Jesus for who he is. Now, the beautiful part of the story, of course, is that Jesus does bring them quite a bounty of fish. And they also see, though, that he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So what are you looking for? It's such an important question. Have you asked yourself that question? What am I looking for? When you become aware that you're looking for something, then you might just see that Jesus is the answer. He's the thing you've been missing. And this has always been at the essence, as I said, of the Consider Project. When my sister died, her friends felt this deep loss. Kim was magnetic personality, one of a kind. She was hilarious and she just exuded energy and grace and love and forgiveness and all all these amazing things. And so when she died, and the way she died so suddenly, there was just this vacuum, this deep loss. Kim couldn't be found. And so when God delivered her message to me, part of the message was to share with her friends that that thing that you're missing so much right now isn't actually Kim, but it's this Jesus that was in her. And the beautiful thing about this Jesus that is in her is that even though Kim is gone, this Jesus is not. He can be found here and now in this world. That was part of Kim's message. That all the things that you loved about her, yes, were wonderful. And one day, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you can be reunited with Kim. But hey, that thing that you love so much, that thing you're missing, that thing you're looking for, that's still available through a relationship with Jesus. Have you considered him? That was the message. So what are you looking for? And the great promise here is you can find it, but you must come. You can see it, but you must come if you want to see even the angels descending and ascending, Jesus will say at the end of this passage. You can see that, but first you must come and be near to him. We'll talk a little more about how to do that in a second. So I love this, this simple, simple message. Maybe you've heard it before. Come and see. And maybe that's what you're doing right now. Maybe you're coming and hopefully you're seeing that Jesus is that thing that you've been looking for. So we find five examples in these passages of people who come and see that Jesus is the thing they've been looking for. So I want to walk through these examples. 
And I just love the variety with which they show you that people find and see that Jesus is the Messiah. They're all different. And God reveals himself in different ways. Jesus introduces himself in different ways. And I love that reminder. So the first is John the Baptist. We won't spend a lot of time with him. We talked about that last week. But he has Jesus revealed to him in a very mystical, prophetic vision, which is confirmed by this very supernatural, spiritual experience where he sees a dove descending on Jesus. And it is confirmed to him that this vision, this word God gave him was in fact true, and Jesus is the Messiah. So that's how John comes to know. He has enough belief to begin following Jesus through this very spiritual experience. So sometimes that's how people come to know Jesus. I call John the mystic or the artist. And many of you might be mystics or artists. This might have been the way God revealed himself to you. If you want a story of this, go ask Lena. Lena Chung, one of our deacons. She's got a great story of God revealing, Jesus revealing himself to her in a very similar way. Now the second person we have here is Andrew. Andrew and the unnamed other disciple of John the Baptizer who leaves John to follow Jesus. We don't have the name of the other person and we don't know exactly why. Many, many scholars believe this is John, the writer of the Gospel of John, and he just doesn't like to put his own name in there. So later in John, you'll hear him refer to himself as the one Jesus loved. And so here, many scholars believe we're talking about John, so Andrew and John. But since we don't know his name, we won't talk about him, we'll just talk about Andrew. And Andrew is interesting, right? He's clearly looking for something. He's looking for knowledge and wisdom. He's looking for new teaching. He's, he's clearly realizing that his life is not leading to everything he hoped it would. And so he sees John the baptizer, this kind of wild prophetic figure who wears camel hair, you know, jumpsuits and has a strange diet out in the wilderness baptizing people. And, and he's drawn to this new teaching. He's drawn to this, uh, to this learning from this new rabbi. And so you see him there. He's left his normal routine of life, and, and he's out there looking for something. He's looking for some new knowledge. Um, and then his teacher tells him, I'm not it. That's it. That's the thing that you need. So I call Andrew the learner. He's the learner. He, he wants to learn and, and, and find what truth is. He's seeking after it. And so he's putting himself under the teaching of others. And only until his teacher di diverts his learning energy towards the true teacher, which is Jesus, does he find the life that he so seeks. In a sense, John the Baptist is saying, I've taught you all that I can teach I've completed my courses. You've passed. Now you need to go follow him. He is the teacher that can take you the rest of the way. I just love that. 
I think there's a lot of people like that in the world. They're searching for knowledge, something new. They realize that whatever mental models we have in the world aren't quite working properly. It's not leading to the kind of life we, we think it should. And so we're open to new teaching and new learning. Uh, I see this with, this story has repeated multiple times, at least with people that I have run into here at Sedaris. Uh, there's a popular YouTuber and teacher, psychologist, a guy by the name of Jordan Peterson, and, and people will come and listen to his talks, and uh, very philosophical, and they realize that he's saying something that's sort of true, and he's not a Christian, but he's toys around, he even did a little teaching on a Bible series, but you know, you can't really peg him down as he's not a Christian, but he's sort of intrigued by these ideas, and so people get sort of introduced to this teaching that's different from what they're hearing in the world, and so they're open, and it actually can and has for many people become something of a gateway to now exploring the teachings of Jesus. So I find this Andrew and a lot of you where it could be actually reading somebody else's book or listening to somebody else's talk, but that talk doesn't quite lead you exactly all the way to where you need to go, and then you open up and say, maybe I need to go a step further and learn from Jesus himself. That's amazing. That's fantastic. That's great. Because the teaching of mere men can only take you so far. But when the God-man, Jesus Christ, shows up in your life, if you're looking for truth, he reveals himself as truth. I hope that happens for you, for the learners, the Andrews. One of the amazing things about Andrew, he brings not only his brother, but we see two other times in the Gospel of John. It's Andrew that introduces people to Jesus. Praise God for the Andrews, who are always bringing people to come and meet Jesus. But it started with him wanting to be a learner and to find truth. So the third character, an example we have here, is Andrew's brother. Simon. And so let's just read that again. Verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. What, he's, what John's doing there is he has audiences who speak Greek and audiences who speak more Aramaic. And so Messiah is the Hebrew or Aramaic word for the Savior, the Anointed One. And then he's just telling to his Greek audience, which is translated to Christ. So that when we say Messiah and Christ, we're saying the same thing. That's all he's doing there. So uh, Andrew says, we found the Messiah, the Christ. And so he brought Simon to Jesus. <laughs> I love this. When Jesus saw him, when Jesus saw Simon, he said to him, Hey, you're Simon, son of John. And imagine Peter being like, yeah, what's it to you? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to start calling you Cephas, <laughs> which then he gives us another translator, which is translated to Peter. And Cephas and Peter, so Cephas is the Aramaic and Peter's the Greek, means stone or rock. In the other Gospels, you see this encounter happening later where Jesus calls Peter the rock who will build the church on. Now, the reason I laugh at this is because John's telling us, oh, no, no. Jesus started calling him stone, like, right at the beginning. Like, could you imagine what kind of confidence you have to have the first time you meet somebody to say, you know what, I'm going to give you a nickname. 
And Peter didn't know at this point, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to build my church upon you and your leadership. He just calls him a stone. (laughs) Notice, it doesn't say, and so Peter started following Jesus. (laughs) Just sort of leaves it at that. So we don't know. Obviously, Peter did have enough belief to follow. But the way John writes his gospel, let me show you this. Turn to the, the last page of John. John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, this is, uh, a, recounts the third appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And what's really interesting here is Jesus, three times in a row, asks Peter if he loves him. And Peter keeps saying, yes, of course you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, which is to say, lead the church. And he has to ask him three times, and it's paralleling the three times that, that Peter denies Jesus after Jesus has been arrested. And so it gets to the end of that, in, that fun encounter. And if you look at verse 19, um, it says this. This is chapter 21, verse 19. He says, he, that's Jesus, said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. He's just right above that sort of prophesied that Peter will die a martyr's death. And then, and then it says, after saying this, Jesus told Peter, follow me. So that's the first time we have the follow me that Jesus says to Andrew and John, and then as we'll see, Philip and Nathaniel. It's the first time we see it, him saying it to Peter. Now, of course, Peter already had enough belief to start following Jesus, but it shows sort of the personality of Peter, and, and John's drawing that out for us. That this relationship that Jesus had with Peter was one where Peter was always, he was a bit, um, there was a bit of tension there always. Peter, are you really going to trust me? Are you really going to follow me? And so it's, it's funny how not until the very last chapter of John's gospel does Jesus say to Peter, follow me. And, of course, Peter does in a way that changes human history forever. So this is, this is Peter. He's a stone, which at its best can be the stone or the rock that the church of Jerusalem is built up upon and starts the Jesus movement. That's, we know that happens. But at this moment, Peter's stoniness is just this personality quality that Jesus sees in him. This stubbornness, maybe even this hard-heartedness. And Jesus, with his spiritual eyes, can see this about Simon and gives him this nickname on the first encounter. So I love that. The things in our life that could be, could be actually our worst quality, Jesus, with some following of him, turns into an amazing opportunity an amazing quality that can change the course of history. I love that. So Peter has enough belief to begin to follow, but it's very small at this point because he's met a guy who's just given him a nickname on first encounter. So to me, I call Peter the mule. (laughs) Do you have any mules in your life? 
Maybe they're even following, but they're not fully following. Maybe you're like that. I've got enough belief to follow, but it's going to take me 20 chapters. 20 chapters of encounters of seeing Jesus before I fully go all in. That was my story. I've got a bit of Peter in me. A bit of stubbornness. A bit of stoniness. Where I was following him early in my life, but I wasn't giving him my whole life. I was hedging my bets. Until one day, Jesus called me fully. Dave, are you going to follow me for real? And that day I said yes. Maybe that's you. The fourth person we encounter is Philip. Philip's an interesting. So go to verse 43. It says, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. So Philip's like the opposite of Peter. It takes 20 chapters before Jesus says, Follow me to Peter. Jesus literally encounters Philip, meets him, we might imagine talks to him for a bit, and just right there says, Follow me. There's no pushback. Philip doesn't question. He just says, Okay. Amazing. Very easy transition for Philip. Why might that be? Well, one of the things we know about Philip, when he shares Jesus with Nathaniel, he goes to Nathaniel. Let's look at that. And he says to Nathaniel, uh, verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and also in the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So if that's the way that Philip presents Jesus to Nathanael, it says this about Philip. He was a man who knew the scriptures. He was a man who understood what he was looking for. So that when it showed up, it wasn't hard for him to see. And Nathanael also seems to probably be a man of the scriptures. Otherwise, why would Philip have presented him that way? So Philip doesn't take a lot. Now, what we see, um, what else can we know about Philip? Look at verse uh, 44. It says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Now why does John bring that up? Probably because Andrew and Peter and Philip were already friends before this happened. So that's probably part of why it was easy for Philip to start to follow Jesus, to have enough belief to begin following because I call Philip the socialite Philip seemed to be friends with a lot of people I think he was he's got Nathaniel his friend that he immediately thinks about Nathaniel needs to know about this he's friends with Andrew and Simon from their hometown maybe he had already met Jesus and that's part of why when Jesus sees Philip he says he calls him to follow so it seems to me Philip sort of is a socialite Maybe you're a socialite. Maybe you've even been hanging around Christians or teachers of the law, teachers of religion. Maybe you like just being around the community of Christ. And so hopefully one day, Jesus confronts you and says, Hey, you've been hanging around. I want you to follow me. 
That's Philip to me. Socially connected, enjoys studying the scripture, but until he met Jesus and Jesus said, follow me, his life was not changed. Philip the socialite. And then we come to Nathaniel. Oh boy, there's a lot of Nathaniels in this city, in this church. I love Nathaniel. Let's read about Nathaniel. So Philip's like, I'm in. And he says, he says, and then it says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew Peter. Now verse 45. So Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph. Yeah, the carpenter's son. Yeah, from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, just, you feel the skepticism in in Nathaniel's voice. Seriously? Nazareth? Come on. Carpenter's son? No. Too much. I can't believe that. Verse 47. Or, or sorry. Then, then Philip says, come and see. Come on. I know you're skeptical, but just come with me. Come with me and see. So Philip says, fine, I'll come. Now, let me just pause there. This is so beautiful. There are two types of skepticism. You can be a skeptic and and be so arrogant that you will not come and see. Or you can be like Nathaniel and be a skeptic, a skeptic of skeptics, but be humble enough to say, you know what, I'm probably not going to find anything here. I mean, this guy's from Nazareth, he's Joseph's son, but you know what, I'll come. And the question is, what kind of skeptic are you going to be? Nathaniel's the kind of skeptic that has enough humility to say, all right, Philip, I'll come with you. I'll see what you have to show me. And so he comes. So it's okay to totally assume that you know and to be guarded and walls up and surely it can't be, but still come. And that's what Nathaniel does. Verse 47, then Jesus saw Nathaniel. I mean, he really saw him coming towards. And he said, this is, this is crazy. Jesus said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Philip says, or Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. And Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is an amazing encounter where Jesus isn't upset. Jesus knows what Nathaniel said about Nazareth and things coming from Nazareth, and he's not upset. He actually says, in this person is no deceit. So I've been thinking, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Well, when he references a true Israelite, this is what you need to understand about 
Israel, what it means to be an Israelite, a true Israelite. If you go study the Old Testament, Jacob has his name changed by God, similarly to how Jesus changes uh, Simon's name to Peter. Jacob has his name changed to uh, Israel, which is, means one who wrestles with God. So to be a person of Israel was to be one who wrestled with God. God is not so distant and far off or, or so beyond our wrestling with him. He wants us to wrestle with him. So in a, he doesn't want us to be two-faced. He wants us to say to him what we're really thinking. And that's exactly what Nathaniel does. Here's what I'm really thinking. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. There's no way the Messiah is coming from there. You see that? But he's willing to engage and wrestle with the question. A true Israelite, Jesus says. There's no two-faced in you. I love that about you. Yeah, you're wrong about me, because I am the Messiah, and I did come from Nazareth. But I love that you didn't lie about that, feeling that thought that you have. That's a true Israelite. I love that. Now, when Jesus then, in verse 51, references ascending and descending of the angels, that's actually an allusion to this story of Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis chapter 28. Or, or, or not to him wrestling, but to Jacob, who is the wrestler. So all in here, and, and, and Jesus knows this, that Nathaniel knows the scriptures and knows what he's saying about him. That, hey, you'll be like Jacob. You'll also see this ladder to heaven, where the heaven is opened up. That's the vision that Jacob had just a little bit before he wrestled with God and got his new name. So he, Jesus is really saying something amazing here about Nathaniel. He's saying, I love that about you, Nathaniel. I love that you're not two-faced with me. I love that you're not like those religious leaders or people who pretend to worship me, who pretend to give their life to me, but then don't do that at all. I love that, that there's no deceit in your mouth, even though you were wrong about me. See that? So Nathaniel is the skeptic but the best kind of skeptic, the true skeptic. That, yeah, the walls are high, but they're willing to be wrong. And, of course, Nathaniel then comes back after he realizes that Jesus has a kind of vision, a supernatural vision Jesus has of him, probably studying under a fig tree, which was common in the day, maybe taking a nap. But he, Jesus supernaturally had seen that happen earlier in the day, and Nathaniel realizes, ain't no ordinary man can do that. This must be the Son of God, and then the skeptic becomes the first one to proclaim that Jesus is the King of Israel. Really cool stuff. So those are my five examples of having enough belief to follow. This is so important. You don't have to wait till you know everything or believe everything to begin to follow Jesus. You just have to have enough belief to begin to put yourself in the places where Jesus is. You have to have enough faith to come and see, and then enough faith to keep staying where Jesus is staying. And then, Jesus says, in verse 51, read it. Sorry, verse 50. Jesus responded to Nathanael, Do you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see. There's that future Tense. You will see heaven 
opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll have the kind of vision that Jacob had, the father of Israel. You will see greater things. And I love this promise to the early adopters amongst us. There are greater things yet to come. God will reveal himself in ways you couldn't imagine if you keep coming and believing the promise that you will see. Jesus isn't done revealing himself to you. In your life, in your story, he's not done with this church or this city. He's doing something great and we will get to see it if we continue to be where he is. You have to have just enough belief to keep hanging with Jesus and you'll see amazing things. That's the promise he gives to the disciples. They still didn't know the fullness of the picture. They didn't really fully know what it meant that he was the Lamb of God or how he would take away the sin of the earth or how he could possibly see Nathaniel under the fig tree or how he was so confident to give Peter a new name first time he met him. They don't quite get it, but they have enough belief, belief to start following. And Jesus says, greater things are yet to come. And John and his gospel is going to show that. We're going to now transition to seven signs that Jesus is going to give to his disciples and to the world that he is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And they get to be front row and see these things happen because they came so that they might see. Now, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? Go to verse 38 real quick with me. This is the question that Andrew asks to Jesus. Jesus says, what are you looking for? They ask him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? So this is the question that we can ask even today. God, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you tabernacling here on earth? How do I get near so that I might see you do your work? And not every place that calls itself church is a place where Jesus hangs out. Not every person who says that they're a preacher of the gospel is a preacher of the gospel. So we have to be able to know, and, and I tell you this not just to say, so stay at Sedaris, but when you go from this place, because in eight years we've turned this thing over four times. Because Seattle's a transient city and people come and they go. So when you go, how do you go find another place where Jesus is staying? A true church of the risen Lord. Here's what you look for. A place that is unapologetically Christ-centered. The preaching is Christ-centered. The sacraments are presented. The body and the blood of Christ. Jesus is not turned into a good moral teacher, but he's called what he is by John the baptizer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, which means that that church, that place, that community you're a part of talks about the atoning blood of Jesus and that it's the only thing that can take away our sin. Those are the places Jesus hangs out. That they celebrate communion, the necessity for Christ's death, that they celebrate baptism, the necessity of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection through the Spirit. And that when you come over and over again, you have this happen to you, that you begin to see 
more clearly who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, that you experience his presence, that your knowledge is not just in the mind, but it is experiential, that you experience Jesus' love for you through his people, that you experience his peace because his presence is there, that the fruit of the Spirit is everywhere, that there's heavenly hospitality, And finally, that there's all kinds of people. There's mystics and artists and dreamers. There's thinkers and learners. There's blue-collar pragmatist mules. There's socialites, tag-alongs, skeptics and cynics, and they all come to find that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the kind of place you want to hang out. Do you see that in the place you're hanging out? Because that means Jesus is there. Because Jesus draws all those kinds of people to himself. I hope that we're that kind of place. I think that we are. For eight years, I've marveled at all the variety of types of people that are part of this community. And God seems to be revealing that Jesus is his son to all types of people here at Sedaris. And that's nothing that we can do except we set the table so that you can come and see. Let's pray.